What a delight to be with you all. Our text this morning is from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews 9 and verse 15. Our text this morning reflects uh, a secular principle. Oh, let me as well give you the page number if you're using one of our pew Bibles. That is page 1202. So please do turn there if you're using one of those. But as we consider our text this morning and that secular principle that's being brought forward, it is that principle of mediation. Mediation. It's become common in our world, oftentimes made popular or insisted upon through insurance companies. Mediation is the process that you're asked or required to enter when you have a grievance with another party. It's the process that tries to keep a a situation from escalating into a court case. Let's say you've had a surgery and something goes wrong. Well, before you had that surgery, you signed endless amounts of documents. And in those documents, on one of those lines, you agreed to mediation. That is, before you sue the doctor for what went wrong, you agree to sit down with a professional mediator to arbitrate your case. To look at the facts with someone who presumably is able to assess the medical side and your side and your grievance. And to see all of these and to relate which is the appropriate response and to decide what should be done. Same thing can happen in a car accident when no fault is assigned. And the insurance company can require mediation between the two parties. To come to a, a neutral mediator to look at all of the details of the accident and decide who is at fault or which party deserves how much of the responsibility. Oftentimes, the insurance company itself will carry that role on for you. There's many examples of mediation in our world becoming much more prevalent, unfortunately, than less. But there are some defining elements of mediation that we need to keep in mind as we approach the scriptural text that talks about mediation. The first is, and the first element of mediation, is that it keeps you from going to court. So we want to recognize that element. The second thing that we note about mediation is it is mutual. Both parties agree to it, that they are going to come together and that they are going to allow this neutral individual to address the issue. That becomes our third point after it keeps you from going to court and after it being mutual that the mediator is neutral. It's impossible from a human point of view because we all have some biases. We might make those uh, assumptions based on what we know of an individual and they may even be a reverse bias. We may assume that a person is biased against women and in turn it turns out that he is more in favor of women than he would be against them. The fourth element that we see about mediation is that it is binding. So we want to keep these four principles in mind because we're going to see facets of them in our text because the idea of mediation is not uncommon to the ancient world. So we remember that it keeps us from going to court, it is mutual, that the mediator is neutral, and that it is binding. Now we're going to see these conditions are not exactly the same when we switch from the secular world to our biblical application. But our text today is indeed all about mediation. Only it does not have the restrictions of our secular world examples. But it's interesting to consider the parallels, both the similarities 
and the differences. Because of that, I've titled our message this morning, The Necessity of Mediation. The Necessity of Mediation. Hebrews 9 and verse 15 is our text. I'm actually going to back up for our reading back to verse 11 so that I can read kind of this entire context because that began our new section. So follow along as I read in Hebrews 9 beginning at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses... To all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say that things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The necessity of mediation. Our text today is the second discussion on this contrast of the bloods. This contrast is the fourth of six contrasts in our main section of Hebrews that shows us the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over the high priesthood. We've already looked at Jesus' superiority in contrast to the earthly versus heavenly ministries. We've looked at Jesus' superiority in light of the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant alongside of the new covenant. And we've looked at Jesus' superiority in the old tabernacle, that is in the tent in the wilderness, alongside of the new or the heavenly tabernacle, which the Lord is currently in with his Father. And now we come to this fourth contrast between the blood. As we've looked at each, each of these contrasts, there is an increasing importance. All have been important, but the author is building for us. He is bringing us to a crescendo. And as he does so, each of the different contrasts become more and more important. 
they become less able for the hearer to reject them. Initially, the comparison of Jesus' earthly ministry alongside of, or Jesus' heavenly ministry alongside of the high priest's earthly ministry, there is no discussion about whether it is superior, but the mandatory choosing is not as adamant as it is as we continue to move along. As we get to the fact of the, the covenant and the new covenant, all it brought, so much more important and so critical for us to recognize that it is so far superior in that it is all of God as, as opposed to the old covenant which required man's obedience. So each of these are escalating and each contrast has been intertwined with one another. So they don't stand alone. We don't find hard and fast breaks in them, but there is an overlap and we see a beauty in the grammar as the text is written and we move from one topic to another and our author introduces one topic and then continues on and then picks back up again at a later point. Well, now we are in the most vital contrast so far and it is the contrast of the blood. Last week we began the contrast and we saw that Christ entered through his own blood in the text which we just read. His blood was contrasted to that of the animal sacrifices. The main point of the introduction being that it is his own blood by which he entered. And we noted last week the importance of the word through. The mechanism which drives this entire section. Christ appeared in verse 11 through this greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is the conclusion to our previous contrast, by the way. And then he entered not through the blood of goats and calves in verse 12, but through his own blood. And then we saw that he entered through the eternal spirit in verse 14. That is, through the Holy Spirit. These four uses of the word through show us the means by which Jesus is superior to the Jewish high priesthood. The final contrast of the presentation of the blood was at the end of verse 12. Namely, through his own blood, he obtained eternal redemption. That is, he obtained eternal deliverance or eternal ransom. The blood of animal sacrifices was only temporary. It was only external, as we saw back in verses 8 to 10. That is, it only provided cleansing for bodily elements for ways in which the worshiper defied the law in the covenants related to food or related to washings or external elements. And therein, even those cleansings, although they did provide that cleansing, it was only instantaneous. For the moment that the sacrifice was over, again, the sin began to build upon the worshiper, and so also the guilt. So there was never a cleansing of the conscience that occurred, but always that understanding and that presence of guilt in the mind of the believer. But Jesus' blood obtained eternal deliverance for his children. Through his blood, we are ransomed for the debt of sin into which we are born. Verse 14 revealed that the final component of our introduction was this contrast of purifications. Namely, again, that contrast of the purification of the, contra of the conscience. 
Verse 9 never perfected the conscience, but now in Christ we are fully cleansed as verse 14 shows us. Our consciences are fully cleared. There is no longer a guilt. There is no longer a burden that we are held to the sin which continues to mount in our lives. For now we know that Jesus Christ has paid the price and we are delivered from that sin. And they are specifically cleansed in Christ from dead works to serve the living God. These dead works, as we saw, are self-styled religion. They are the pharisaical elements that they develop their own religion, their own pursuit of God, despite having had all of God's word and all of the prophets to guide them. We mentioned that there are many who follow these dead works. In fact, we can identify every religion in the world today according to two patterns. There are those who believe by faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. There are those who believe in any number of things and do so by their works. This becomes one of the challenges with Catholicism. Their focus is on the works which they will do. This is the issue with cult religions such as the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons. It is their works which they believe are getting them to heaven. This is the same with Islam. This is the same with all of the other world religions. It is a works-based system. Only in true Christianity is there the understanding that our faith is only in Christ and in his works. And that in his works and in his blood, as we just saw, we are cleansed from these dead works to serve the living God. Well, this is the result of Jesus' shed blood. So at this beginning of the blood, we continue to the next phase of the contrast of the blood. And in our continuation today, we're exposed to what is received through the shed blood of Christ. We've seen what the shed blood of Christ did in our introduction. Now we're going to see what is received through that shed blood. And the effect of Jesus' death is shown, and herein we see the necessity of mediation and how this necessity draws us irresistibly to Christ. That is, we realize what has happened through his death. So with that, let's go to our first point, which begins in verse 15, and that point is called the mediator. The mediator. I realize I need to apologize to y'all regarding our sermon notes because they're sitting in my bag and not in your hands. So I'll attempt to make sure I go a bit slower on our points if you didn't get them, and we'll have them for you next week. So just to reiterate our title, The Necessity of Mediation, and this our first point, The Mediator. And that point is in, all in verse 15, The Mediator. Well, verse 15 begins, for this reason. Well, the first question we must answer is, for what reason? What is he talking about? Well, it is his shed blood. It is the topic that we have just addressed, the main topic of verses 11 to 14. In those verses, the blood achieved eternal redemption. It, it cleansed the conscience away from works of no value and towards service to God. Well, one arises here in the recognition, this issue arises regarding seeing these blessings. 
you see, there, there were these elements that were going on uh, that continued to go throughout time uh, of death and more work. And that they were, not, they were not seeing the blessings that were happening in the present time. You see, they were, they were not recognizing that there was really a blessing in Christ. They saw what he had done. They saw what his work achieved. But they were not seeing it in their lives. So now we have a new perspective on the blood, which begins for this reason. The literal translation of this introduction is, and you'll be very familiar with this word, and through this. All of the throughs that we have just seen, now we have another. Our idea of this main preposition through, four times expressed directly in our previous text, and twice indirectly, now we have the same application here. We have the same process that it is through this, through the blood primarily. Verse 15 continues, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The term mediator appears back in Hebrews 8.6. You might note that and remember Hebrews 8.6, which we recently discussed. And it says in that verse, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. This was when we talked about the ministries of Christ. How his ministry was far superior because the covenant was superior. And again, we see a binding together of these contrasts that are occurring. And all of this is a function of Christ's role as mediator. It is a, a far better covenant, it, as 8.6 says. It is a new covenant, now as 9.15 tells us. Jesus mediates between us and God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We've offended a holy God in our sin. And it isn't just our sin nature. We are born into that sin. We are born as an offense to God. So we need a mediator. Remember what our first function of the mediator was in the secular world? It is to keep us from going to court. Well, this is the same role that Jesus plays. He keeps us from standing before the Father as judge. Instead, Jesus stands in our place. Well, could we question whether we would be okay standing in that role instead of Jesus? I'm okay standing up for myself in front of the Father. Well, let's consider for just a moment some of the elements of wrath that we see from God. How about God's wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah? Raining fire and brimstone and destroying the city such that there was no trace found. So much so that they are still not to this very day certain of the location of those cities. That's pretty serious wrath, I'd say. But it's not just stopping there. How about the Red Sea? How about the wrath of God upon the Egyptian army as they came in behind the nation of Israel and God closes the water on them and the chariots and the horses and the soldiers are flying everywhere as they are drowning underneath these millions of gallons and pounds of water. God's wrath is a pretty big deal. Or the sons of Korah 
when they rebel against Moses and God opens the earth and swallows them alive. I don't think I want to stand before that. Even Miriam, as she rebels against her brother. Any of you kids ever have a problem with one of your brothers? I know my boys have never had a problem with one another. Yeah, what happens to Miriam when she has a problem with Moses? God strikes her with leprosy. I don't think we want to stand before God as our judge. Jesus is the mediator for us, and it is a very, very good thing. He is the mediator of a new covenant, and we know what that covenant is. We've talked about it. It is a unilateral covenant where God takes our hearts of stone, removes them, and gives us a heart of flesh. Where he takes his law and he writes it on our heart so that we know the things that are right and the things which are not. He takes and he puts his spirit within us so that we live in a different way. It's not a bilateral covenant like that Mosaic covenant. It doesn't require our obedience. It's all of God. And through his blood, Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. Jesus mediates a covenant between us and God, and that covenant is one in which God is doing all the work. Now, that sounds like a pretty good thing to me. Doesn't it to you too, beloved? I mean, if I'm going to be one who, who Christ is going to stand in my stead, and who all of the work that I'm a part of a covenant is all being done by him, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, the purpose of that mediatorial role follows in verse 15, where it says in that role, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. It is the very death of Christ that enables them to receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The effect of his shed blood is now plainly stated, and there is no mistake. This isn't Jesus cutting himself and some of his holy blood being shed, and he said, okay, that's good enough. We'll put a Band-Aid on it, and now we're off and running. No, it was his death that brought this forward. There are many who argue that the Lord did not die. Why do they do so? Because if they can deny the bodily death, they're in denying the bodily resurrection of Christ, then they remove the power and the efficacy of Christ's salvation. And they remove their responsibility. And therein is the rub. Men are fine with talking about God because everyone believes in a God. Even our scientists today are realizing that evolution is absolutely untenable. So, so we believe now that there is a higher power that has brought about this creation. So we can all agree to a God. But when we start talking about Jesus, a God who holds us responsible, that doesn't sit so well. Now if you're going to charge me and say that the things that I do and that I love to do in my flesh, that they're not right, I'm not going to like that so much. Well, but we see that that's exactly what's being presented to us. This is no ordinary death as we previously discussed. Because this death paid the ransom as verse 12 explained to us. It gave eternal redemption. It cleansed the worshiper as verse 14 showed us. 
And it cleansed us from dead works. It cleansed us also from sin. Hebrews 1.3 confirms that point. So it is Jesus' blood. It is his death by which we are cleansed and by which we are redeemed. This is some death. This is some mediator. And now in the middle of this verse, we see those to whom it applies. It is to those who transgressed the first covenant. Those that were disobedient concerning the first covenant. Who are these? Who was the first covenant to? When we talk about the first covenant, we're speaking of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So this is talking about the children of Israel. This is forgiveness, this is redemption that is being granted to all of the historic nation of Israel. And they didn't wait in, de in death until Christ died to receive this redemption. The verbs of these verses don't permit such a consideration. It says very clearly that the nation of Israel received redemption from Christ's work, but they received it during their time on the earth. Their redemption occurred while they lived, and more specifically, when they died. So Jesus' death has taken the place for the redemption of those who transgressed the first covenant. This is a massive point. It's easy for us to overlook this because there's a lot of words in this verse. And there's a lot of stuff to keep track of in this verbiage. But Jesus' death occurred to redeem those who transgressed the old covenant. All those sins committed under the Mosaic covenant are covered in Christ's death. He ransomed their sins and he paid their price. But this doesn't indicate that all Israel will be saved. This isn't universalism. And we see that at the end of verse 15. Those who have been called may receive the promise. The effect of the redemption is only to those who are called. Only those whom God had chosen. This verse is an excellent summary as related to the Old Testament that speaks about the atoning work of Christ. It's the same in both Testaments. There is no discontinuity. The extent of Jesus' redemption or the extent of to whom it is effective is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New. And our verse confirms that point. It's the same as 1 John chapter 2 regarding the coverage of sin, but its effect only to those who will believe, only to the chosen. 1 John 2 even uses the language, and go back and look at it, the language of the old commandment, and the old covenant. Old and new are both brought forward there. Well, we're talking about the elect from the Old Covenant. And, and the elect aren't strictly those of the New Testament church. There is also the elect of historic Israel. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We should not be surprised that there were faithful men and women before Christ. We know that Abraham was one. There were many others that were genuinely seeking after God that were genuinely trying to be obedient, to worship him in spirit and truth, to come in humility, to recognize that God does not desire sacrifices, but a broken and contrite heart. No, there were many that were faithful. Well, these who have been called to receive the promise of an her internal inheritance 
are those who had that passionate pursuit of Christ. That passionate pursuit of God as he was revealed. It is vital that we recognize what's going on here. There was a problem with the early Jewish church, you see. That's why this is brought forward for us. They were not seeing a dead Messiah as of much value. They were, they were recognizing that this may all be true, but the promise of redemption really, it isn't realized until heaven. And frankly for them, the dead works were a lot easier to do than serving the living God. It's easier for me to do these rote elements of worship than to truly bring my whole heart before God, continue to assess where I am with the Lord, and continue to serve Him from a pure heart. So those who, who understood these things were struggling with what was going on. They were, throughout their history, they've considered Messiah as a conquering king, the one who would deliver them from all of their enemies. Well, this is exactly the exchange that took place during the Passion Week of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he came into Jerusalem, they're crying out, Hosanna! And by the end of the week, when they realize he is not coming to be their conquering king, they are crying out, crucify him. Well, now, for these Jewish believers, there's much persecution. These Jews have already been expelled from Rome once. We've talked about how this is a letter to the Jewish church in Rome. Acts 18.2 tells us that the Jews were already expelled from Rome. That would have been back about 15 or 20 years earlier. Now they're back in Rome and this nut job Nero is running around burning Christians. And they're recognizing that although we are Jews and although we are separate, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see we might be the next ones that are brought before the gladiators. We may be the next on the docket and they're losing their hope. The challenges of their world are too big. So the author writes to remind them of the effect of the blood and that through his death, the elect of the old covenant would be ransomed. Now this brings to light a, a whole conversation about the Old Testament believers and what happened to them at death. When we go through a discussion of eschatology as we have been on Wednesday nights in Ezekiel and we talk about the rapture and the tribulation, the return of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the thousand year reign, and finally the eternal state, the question naturally comes, well what about the Old Testament saints? What about these who were called? What happened to them? Well, our text has just told us that Christ died for them. Exactly as he did for the elect of the church age. In fact, both are called by the same title, those called out. Furthermore, we know that they believe just like the believers of the church age because we know Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Faith is expressed the same both in the New Testament and the Old Again, their title is the called or the chosen, the same as the New Testament. And Christ's redemptive blood is shed for them, the same as New Testament believers. We have to conclude that they also go to heaven in just the same way. Their souls departed from their body at death, those that were the called, the obedient, and they were immediately in the presence of Christ. 
even though prior to Jesus' physical death. Then their bodies will be resurrected. Some have argued that their bodies already have been resurrected because Matthew 27, 52 speaks about those who when Jesus was resurrected, their bodies came out of the grave. The challenge with that discussion is that in Matthew 27, 52, it says many of the bodies. So it is a limitation. It was not all of the dead. But our author writes to show these New Testament Jewish believers that their Old Testament believing relations were ransomed through his blood to receive the promise. And that this all happened through Jesus as the mediator. But that should leave you asking another question. Put yourself in the place of these Jewish believers. What question might you still be asking? Maybe something like, Oi, I'm glad for them, but what about me? Isn't that the question that we often ask? What about me? Even perhaps a question in our own lives. Well, the answer has already been hinted at, and it is the last word of this verse 15, inheritance. Ah, says the good Jewish man, to what inheritance are you referring? Well, the answer to that question begins to be expressed in our next point. The mechanism of mediation is our second point the mechanism of mediation. And it's in verses 16 to 17. The mechanism of mediation. Let's look at these verses. Verses 16 and 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Now, these verses can tend to cause some confusion at first glance. The, the question often arises, how do these relate to any of the first covenant issues? Did God's covenant promise to Noah to never again flood the earth not take effect until Noah died? Such that God could have effectively brought another flood before Noah died? That, that doesn't sound right. Did the Abrahamic covenant not take effect until he was dead? What about the Mosaic or the Davidic? Well, the answer lies in a small nuance of the grammar. Literally, the smallest English word, the word a, the indefinite article, a or an, like a tree or a car or an earthquake. It's an indefinite article that's used, which makes the noun that it relates to indefinite. So it is talking about a covenant here. One that is indefinite. The word covenant is used 21 times in Hebrews. And in every case but these two, it is connected with something that makes it definite. It is a new covenant. It is the first covenant. It is a better covenant. It is my covenant. It is the covenant. Each of those make a definite reference. But here, it is just a covenant. So what is this indefinite covenant? To answer that question, we have to look at the context of the verses. Of course, right? Whenever we have a question about Scripture, we look at the context of the verses. Verse 15 speaks about the necessity of the death of the one who made it. In fact, one of the verbs in verse 16 is a legal term expressing a verdict, or in this case, confirming the occurrence of the death. 
So whatever this indefinite covenant is, it requires death. Additionally, the covenant requires the death of the one who made it. So whoever this one is, we know it is not referencing God the Father. Because God does, the Father never will die. So we're talking about a man who makes the covenant. Now Jesus was a man, so we could say it might be him. But notice the term about the one making it is also general. That is, it is also indefinite. It literally says, the one who made it. This sounds like anyone could make this covenant. And, and so probably not Jesus, as he is never mentioned in an indefinite reference. And his covenant is not like the covenant of any other man. So verse 17 carries the same meaning. The covenant is only valid when men are dead. Again, an indefinite reference to any man. And that point is restated in the opposite language at the end of the verse. It's never enforced when the one who makes it lives. Again, an indefinite reference to a man. Galatians 3.15 describes the same type of covenant, which gives us a little insight. Paul writes in Galatians 3.15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. This covenant of man is obviously not one of the covenants that we have talked about with God. This is a very different context. We get our last hint from that final word in verse 15, the word inheritance. The word covenants can refer to a divine covenant like it does in the rest of Hebrews 8 to 10, but this Greek word can also reference a will, a will or a last testament, and that's what's being described in our verses. It's the clue of the word inheritance. These verses are talking about what happens with a human will or last testament. It is a statement about what is to occur at the death of the individual. And in a will are the directions for the disposition of real property or assets at death. This is what Tom was speaking about in our equipping hour earlier in June. Well, per verse 17, it is only valid when the death occurs. Because while a man lives, he can still change what he's going to do with his property. So these terms and covenants are exactly the same as today, as they were when they were written in AD 65. These are the mechanics of a covenant. They are the mechanics of a will. Well, this is all fine and good, but... What does it have to do with our context and with our general topic of the contrast of the blood? And particularly, what does it have to do with the blood of Christ? Well, the answer to our question is again the last word of verse 15, inheritance. And particularly the promise of eternal inheritance which has occurred through the death of Christ. Verses 16 to 17 aren't just the mechanisms of a will, they are the mechanisms of mediation. And we've established that Jesus is the mediator. There is no issue with relating the general conditions of a human will to Jesus, particularly when we consider one very important verse in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 reads, 
in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. What does it mean that Jesus is heir? It means he is the one who has inherited everything. John 3.35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus is the heir who has received all things. And now we are talking about a covenant, about a will that speaks about what is to happen at death. These connect Jesus' death with the human covenant. Because as we just saw, he is the heir of all things. And now with his death, he is distributing his inheritance to his children. Just as occurs with a will. This is what Romans 8, 17 tells us where it says, And if children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Jesus has been made heir of all things and now through his death, this mechanism of mediation of a will is coming forward. The mechanism is put into place by Jesus. And in this process, he is distributing to his children all things that he has received. Well, well what are those? What are the things that the children receive? Well, first and foremost, they are the virtues. The virtues of his love. The virtues of his joy. The virtues of his peace. We could go right down the list of Galatians 5.22. And talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit singular of the Spirit which the believer is to have, to possess, and to exhibit. It's given by God because the Spirit is now dwelling in us. Remember the facets of our secular mediation? That the mediator is neutral? Well, here is a huge difference in the mechanism of mediation. The mediator, Jesus Christ, is not neutral. If he were neutral, we would not receive an inheritance. Rather, we'd receive what we deserve for our sin, and that is eternal damnation. But we don't receive what we deserve. Instead, through grace, he has taken the punishment for us. Beloved, how much joy should this motivate in us? How much should this move us through this incredible truth? Now understanding this mechanism of mediation, we begin to understand the necessity of mediation. Even our Jewish friends would say, Oy vey, this is indeed good. Well, we'll return next week and carry out our next two points, but what becomes clear is the necessity of Jesus' death. His death is the mechanism of mediation. No death, no covenant in force, no inheritance. And through his death and through his blood, he is able to be the mediator. And it is the scope of this death that is so incredible, beloved. One commentator notes, the entire past, the entire present, the entire future thus rests on the death that occurred on Calvary, on the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Messiah who died is the absolute necessity no matter in which direction we look. Without him as mediator of a new covenant, 
all that God gave to Abraham and then to Moses and Israel would be a hollow mockery. Without him, there would be no eternal inheritance, no people called to receive it. Absolutely everything hinges on this mediator and this mediation of his bloody, sacrificial, expiatory death. End quote. All that we understand about the covenant is as a function of Jesus' death. All that we have through the new covenant was required his death. It applied to the ancient nation of Israel and it applied to the New Testament Jewish church that our author was writing to. But beloved, what is more important is it applies to us today. Friends, if you're here today and if your relationship with Jesus Christ is not passionate, it's not ongoing, it's not growing, then maybe you need to assess that relationship. How often do you consider the gift that has been given to you? How often do you, does your life express the conditions of joy and peace and love irrespective of what's going on in your life? When that happens, when we show that joy, even though things are difficult around us, we're reflecting Christ because we cannot do that on our own. How often do we consider our sin and the consequences of it? To recognize God's grace in mediating for us. We have to understand this truth. We have the pledge of the inheritance of God. We have his spirit dwelling in us. How do we live in light of his indwelling presence? How are we different? How is your life different from before you know Christ? How is it different than it was last week? How is it going to be different today because of what you know about what the Lord has done? How will it continue to change? You see, it is that difference that shows us Christ living in us. And right now we experience that inheritance that will be completed when we stand face to face. But it is only for those who know Christ. We must recognize the elements of our sin. We must recognize that we desperately need a mediator. For without one, we will stand at the wrath of God. We must understand that our sins are ever before us in our flesh. And we must fight against those sins. We must be confessing them and living lives of obedience through God's word. For these believers, the problems of the world, they were looming large. Well, we each understand this. In our own way, we know the problems of the world. But Paul, who knew these matters better than perhaps anyone, called them... Thank you very much, Mike. But Paul, who knew these matters better than perhaps anyone called them momentary light afflictions in light of the surpassing glory that awaits us. This is the joy and peace that we have. Whatever is going on in our lives, it doesn't control us. We aren't consumed by the difficulties in our world. We aren't concerned about soldiers shot on the Temple Mount. We aren't concerned about rogue nations testing nuclear devices. Because we have the joy of the Lord. We have the peace of Christ. We have the love of the Spirit that moves through us to be shared with other people. We each understand this in our own way and the problems which we have in our world. 
Beloved, the scripture tells us that we are more than conquerors in Christ. It is my fervent prayer that you will understand and that you will grow as Christ's children because of these realities. If you don't know Jesus in this way, then fall to your knees today and pray for his forgiveness and his saving power in your life. Recognizing that it is through his death that we have inherited the most incredible blessings. Yes, in the future. Yes, eternity. Yes, as we read about in that wonderful hymn. But right now, right now we have peace. Right now the love of God compels us. I don't live according to the world. I don't love according to the world. I love according to Christ. As I see the world around me that is in a desperate and despicable condition. Those who, uh, to, to parallel the Indian culture, are in some minds untouchable. They are not untouchable to me. They are those whom we must run and embrace. What did Jesus do to the one who had leprosy? Did he stand back and say, oh, be healed? No, he touched him. That man had not been touched in the last 15 to 20 years of his life. And the Savior could have healed him from afar, but no, he showed him that touch. Beloved, we must carry that love. We must show that touch. We must go forward with the power of Christ to this world because it desperately needs it. It has no idea of the wrath to come. They are to be swallowed in the earth and worse. They are to be covered with the oceans and worse. They are to experience eternal fire and condemnation in a body prepared for the worms to continuously eat. We would not want that for our worst enemy. So what do we do? We carry forth the message of Christ. We carry it forth in joy. We carry it forth by the love, by the peace in our countenance. And we seek to encourage others everywhere that we go. We have eyes of Christ. When you go into the, to the market, when you go into the neighborhood, when you go into the workplace, look for the dejected soul. If you have eyes to look for them, the Lord will reveal them to you. And he will give you blessed opportunities to share the fact that he has shed his blood and that he has died so that we can carry life to them. Only the Spirit can change them. But how will they hear without a preacher? As I look across the room, I see preacher, 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 preacher. You are the A-team whom God has given the good news of Christ. Now you must carry it forward. Now you must realize that you are empowered through an eternal inheritance, through his blood, as were the Old Testament saints as were the saints of the New Testament church, and so will be the saints until the Lord's return. But the way that we will move that return forward is by proclaiming his truth. It is a delightful covenant that we've been shown how the mediation occurs and that it is applied to us and that we get not what we deserve. May we be faithful to be empowered by that message to go forth into this world and to proclaim our glorious Savior in his death.